Welcome back to For Our Faith. In the last podcast, we looked at the rise of pagan Christianity by comparing and contrasting the first church with the fourth century church. And naturally, the question arises, how did this happen? How did Christianity go from a literal following of Christ's commandments to literally following the exact opposite? In order to answer this question, we need to begin by understanding that the gospel was a real proclamation of a new king who was over a new political nation. A political nation that would be complete with a real political law made up of real citizens who would declare to others how they too could become part of this nation. Most Christians today believe that Christ's primary reason for coming to the earth was the salvation of man. And this no doubt was a crucial element of his earthly ministry, and I don't want to take away from from this, but it was not his primary reason for coming to earth. Salvation of man would be the means of bringing to birth this new nation represented in what we call the church. With nearly 100 references to the kingdom of God, it should be clear that Christ's primary ministry while here on the earth was the establishment of a new political nation, the kingdom of God. And to put this in perspective, Christ used the word salvation in only five or six passages. Further, he spoke of being born again one time, but he spoke of the kingdom of heaven nearly 100 times. Rightly understanding the kingdom of heaven is paramount for us in understanding true Christianity. The birth of Christianity was actually the birth of a new kingdom that, as mentioned in an earlier podcast, would demonstrate the manifold wisdom of God by showing to broken humanity and to the angels what the world could look like if all men would obey Christ the King. Interestingly, unlike the kingdoms of the earth, the kingdom of heaven came without observation. There was no marked ascension to power. There was no prior fighting and warring to gain geographical positions. There was no earthly seat of power or capital from which to send forth mandates. But rather, this nation was birthed by men humbling themselves as little children and being born again. As we'll see, this nation was revolutionary. This new humanity would stand as its own governing nation, being governed by Christ the King, who introduced a new kind of social structuring. For instance, the rich become poor and the poor become rich. Or let him that is least among you be your leader, and let him that is greatest among you be your servant. Christ also declared a new kind of law. For instance, love your enemies. If you're hit on one cheek, turn the other as well. Resist not evil. Overcome evil with good. Do not swear. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you, etc. Christ's gospel of the kingdom established a new kind of conduct, a new kind of citizen, a new kind of humanity, a new value system, a new vision that would demonstrate the manifold wisdom of God by restoring his creation back to his original design. Unlike the kingdoms of this world, men of all nations could choose to either belong or not to belong. In order for us to truly understand the impact this new kingdom had as it collided with the kingdoms of this world, we need to understand a little bit about the social 
slash political structuring of all people groups before the arrival of Christianity. Because before the arrival of the kingdom of heaven, all nations, all tribes, empires, etc., they were all structured in a way where the religion and government were one entity. In other words, church and state were not separate entities. Further, you were part of the nation not because of any personal decision to belong to that nation, but because you were born within the nation's political borders, similar to how America is today. Under these world political systems, it is imperative that foreign thought and diversity stay out from its borders. Life under these political conditions has no choices. There is no such thing as freedom of speech or freedom of thought. There's no such thing as freedom of religion. The government of that society dictates to the people what is best for them. And so, therefore, the government dictates what they'll believe, how they'll live, what they will look like, and what they'll do. And so, with this understanding, it's not hard to see why conquered people were often forced to give up their gods and religion and begin participating in the conqueror's religion. These sacral societies could not risk the potential of discord that would be caused by the introduction of new false teaching that would come from these conquered people. Because of the threat that free thinking caused, the punishment was actually often very severe. Those who did not conform to the practice of the society, they were either banished or executed. And these societies did not hesitate using the sword to put down any foreign practice or thought. Another aspect we may observe in these societies is the lack of missionary zeal. Because Everyone within these societies are already, quote, saved. They all be, already belong. And so, therefore, the need for missionary work becomes literally non-existent. The idea of trying to convert someone into the society is really, for the most part, completely foreign. And to illustrate this, let's look at Rome, who was a sacral society. Rome didn't send out missionaries to Gaul, or what would be modern-day France, in order to try to convert them to become Romans. If the Romans wanted France to become Romans, they would have to conquer France and force them to become Romans. The conquered people of France didn't have a choice whether they wanted to be Romans. They were forced to be Romans, or they could die. Now suppose that Rome would have allowed free thought and religion and private meetings among its conquered people. What would have, what would have happened? What would have been the natural result? Well, you would have had sedition, and this is why Rome made a roster of acceptable gods and acceptable designated places where they could corporately worship these gods. And really, part of Rome's success in conquering people was that it allowed them to still worship their own gods. All that the conquered people had to do was submit their god to the list of government-sanctioned gods. They couldn't say that his god was any better than any other god on the approved list, and then this god would be placed on the roster as an acceptable god. These gods then would be given designated places of worship, and as long as the people, both Romans and the conquered peoples, met in these designated places of public worship, all was well. And this brings out another interesting aspect of these societies, which is their practice of corporal worship. The idea of individual or private devotions was unthinkable. 
The idea of small groups gathering together to worship in a private place was literally looked upon as sedition simply because of the possibility that these small groups might begin to foster freedom of thought or thought outside the control of the institution. And this would bring and have the potential of bringing in new ideas that were not approved and sanctioned by the society. So consequently, corporal worship was sanctioned and forced by the society as the only means of acceptable worship. Another few quick observations we can make regarding these earthly kingdoms or societies are that they are observable with definite boundaries in geographical areas. And I think we can understand that by simply looking at a map today. Kingdoms of this world have a visible, historically marked ascension to power. We can read the history books on how Rome came to power, how Germany came to power, how uh, China came to power. Those who are mighty and powerful are greatest within the earthly kingdoms and society. And this makes sense. Those who have the strongest arm are the rulers. They are the winners. And these nations, they fight to preserve their national identity. They fight to preserve their power or their economic interests or their freedom or their rule over other people. These kingdoms, they're not spiritual, but they're physical. And they have observable seats of power. They have observable thrones and palaces and rulers. But another interesting characteristic of these kingdoms is that they all have limited power and authority. And the fact is, is that they all rise and they all fall. It's really important that we understand that up to the arrival of the kingdom of heaven, all societies on earth were structured this way. There was no alternative way of doing religion and government. And this is a really big concept that we need to understand because the kingdom of heaven is a real revolutionary nation that literally collides with the nations of this earth and literally turns them upside down. And it's not until we understand this that we can go on in the next podcast and consider this impact and finish answering how it happened that the 4th century church looks so different than the first church.